gentleman that is has been very amazing during this interview being very honest and helping me understand something that I didn't know much about and I hope that this serves you but David Maxwell's here with us today and we'll be chatting about porn addiction among some other things it's really enlightening to see how the symptoms of behavioral addictions are pretty similar across the board whether it's porn or gambling, or food addiction. So I hope you enjoy this show. Thank you. Hello, David. Welcome to 321 No Kidding. Hey, glad to be here. I'm very curious about our topic today. I don't know much about it. And I think that there's true value in aligning, you know, not aligning, maybe comparing or understanding the different addictions, especially the behavioral ones. I don't think they get enough attention. And I think what we're going to talk about today is a little bit more delicate and maybe Mm -hmm. not enough light shined on. I was um, fortunate enough, I shared with you, I think in our written communication, that I've had the spouse of a sex addict on the show, but I've never Mm -hmm. actually had anyone that suffered from porn addiction before. Yeah. That's what we're going to dig into today. I'm excited to learn more and understand more so I can be of service better because a lot of addictions are co-occurring and come from the same kind of stuff. So that's kind of the foundation. But if you can start us off with, tell us kind of who you are, where you're from, what do you like to do, whatever you want to share. Yeah, um, David Maxwell, I live actually right now in Jackson, Mississippi. I grew up in Mississippi. Just started a uh, business this year, coaching and mentoring men with a platform to do that at davidthemaxwell.com. And I'm looking at getting into podcasts. So excited about that. Excited to be here. But yeah, my story kind of is the basis of why I do what I do. I'm I'm trying to help men kind of speed ahead of where they were. I felt like I took a long way to get there. So I want to try and help guys get there a little bit quicker, find their vision, find who they are. Plus, so many uh, people grew up in a fatherless society that I think for men, that's what they need. So that's kind of the purpose of my my coaching and what I do is to help men kind of figure out who they are, why they're here and what they want to do. I love that mission. And even, even as a female, I could totally see the need as for men with some of the men I have in my life and knowing different circumstances. But even when you say growing up like in a fatherless environment, it strikes a chord and you, you wonder as a female, yeah. it comes with its own set of issues that been trying to sort through this year. But I, I love that that's a, a focus and it's very specific. I imagine that you see similar problems across different clients, maybe? Yeah, it's, I think one of the keys is, is the word overwhelm. A lot of men just feel overwhelmed and they're insecure about what they do. I had one guy tell me the word was dad guilt. You know, he was trying to be a good husband, a good dad, but he always had this guilt. Am I doing enough? Am I, am I being a good dad? And so there's this guilt and overwhelm that a lot of guys feel because they're not really sure what they're doing is right. And, and it's not that any of us are perfect, but it's understanding that if you don't have a direction, then yeah, you're not going anywhere. So it's, it's helping guys find that direction where at least they have some confidence 
to, you know, I'm going this direction. You can always change directions, but it's better to be moving in a direction than not doing anything and just kind of wandering around. And I think that's what a lot of guys feel today. Am I right in thinking that it's not something that men verbalize, you know, even these thoughts? I mean, you're in an intimate situation or relationship with them being a coach, but it's probably not something they say out loud to many people, you know, like that self-doubt about being a good dad. Am I thinking about that correctly? Yeah, most men, I mean, our society still, there's a pressure to be the man, to be in charge. And men kind of have this lone wolf thing where, you know, I've got it. I can handle this. So getting a band of brothers or people they can connect with and do, men just aren't naturally good at that. Women are, are great at that. But men sometimes have, have a little more issues with, you know, getting with friends and then getting open and saying, hey, I've got issues. Because then they're like, well, the other guys are going to think I have problems. Even though all the guys have problems, they don't realize it. It's kind of like for me, the first time I went to a recovery meeting with people, that's when you realize, oh, other people are screwed up too. You know, you think it's just you. You think you're the worst, but then you get on other people and you hear their stories. And then some of their stories, you're like, okay, I'm not that bad. You know, and, and you kind of, okay, that's where I'm at. And I think a lot of guys just need that safe place because men, I, I tell people this way, men are emotional. Well, they feel, but they may not show emotion. Men don't have to show emotion to be, have very strong feelings. If a man was rejected by his dad at the age of seven, well, he felt something and it felt not good. Now, he may years later say, well, it's no big deal, but it really was. And if he's never dealt with it, that's going to be an emptiness in his life. And so that's where I'm coming from. It's not, I, it's not that I have to make men cry or anything like that. It's just that men have very strong feelings. And if they can get in touch with those, I think they make better husbands, better fathers, which is really the goal. We want them, you know, pour into their kids and not just reproduce the same issues their dad had that they got that they're passing on to their kids. Thank you. I'm noticing in my world, and I don't know if it's the circles I've started running in or if it's how I'm picking up on people, but I'm mm -hmm. noticing that men are, some men are starting to make that shift and, and talk more candidly. And again, I'm out here as here's my whole dirty laundry. So it's probably easier for people to share in front of me as I'm sure you experience. but yeah. I like seeing that evolution. I didn't understand, you know, as a female, you think that guys don't have feelings or that they think a certain way, or, you know, you, you just get all these ideas. Yeah. I want to ask you, did, I want you to share your story with us, but my first question is, did this start because you grew up in a fatherless home? Is that why you hone in on that specifically? Yeah, in that, well, my parents divorced when I was nine. So my parents were together up to that point. And then out of nowhere, you know, because you're a kid, you don't know what's going on. You don't understand relational dynamics. You're playing Monopoly one night and your parents say, oh, we're getting a divorce. And you don't even know what that word is as a nine-year-old. But yeah, from that point on, living with my mom, single mom, me and my brother, you know, you kind of move into the teen years where, you know, I saw my dad a couple times a year, but he lived two states away. And this was back in the time where, you know, it was landline phone call was all you got until you saw him at Christmas or in the summer. And my dad was a good guy, but he's two states away. So it was kind of growing up without that. And, and honestly, at the time, I didn't know what I was missing. It wasn't until I had kids. And as my son grew, he's 25 now, I kind of realized, oh, wow, I missed out on a lot. 
So as you grow, plus for me, it was as I began my journey of recovery, I began to understand a whole lot more things that had happened in my life, why I was the way I was. Because when you have no reference, you don't know. And I think a lot of people are living life, they're surviving, they're trying to make it, and they don't really think it's that big a deal, but it really is. That makes sense. So do you want to kind of take us on, I guess, however you share your version of your story, if it's timeline or whatever is most comfortable for you? Yeah, for me, it started uh, when I was a child, actually. I was abused sexually, probably around the age of five or six by a relative, and also began finding old stacks of Playboys in the house. So that kind of began, for me, a journey into that world. And then as I got older, you would still find ways to try and find... Pornography kind of became the coping mechanism. So you discover that. And there was another, as I got into young teens, another time of abuse... So those kind of things kind of reflected where porn kind of became that natural, I don't want to say desensitizer, but it kind of became a life purpose, you know, finding it because back then it was hard to get, you know, it's not like the internet where it's pumped into your house free today, which is very scary and dangerous, but you know, you had to, you know, go find a magazine or eventually a video store. And so, so in my life, you know, I still struggled. I had a, had a moment where I came to faith and, and started going to church and doing good and thinking that would help. And it, and it did. And I was still struggling. I got married thinking, okay, this is going to fix it. It still did. And I still struggled. So it was after my son was first born that I realized my life was out of control in, in so many ways. And so this was an early time where people didn't know what to do with people. Like I talked to a few people. And they kind of gave me, well, just start doing this more, doing that more. And they didn't really understand. In their mind, they were basically saying, well, you just need to quit. And you're like, well, gosh, I hadn't thought of that. You know, and (laughs) it almost makes you mad. But then you feel that extra shame. Well, maybe I just don't have what it takes. Maybe I'm just a failure. So, So for me, it was a lot of shame and a lot of struggling with my worth as a man because I couldn't stop even though I wanted to stop. You know, I would stop for a while and then end up, you know, at that time I was probably 280 pounds. I was a a large man. I'm 6'4". And so I, to me, I was sneaking into the video store in the middle of the day. Well, you know, that's how stupid I was. But I finally went home, had a hard conversation with my wife. And at that moment, actually, I I tell my story on the website that I, I actually almost drove off a bridge because I was so scared of what was next. Recovery is scary. And people who've never been there don't understand. But for someone who's an addict, or whatever it is, when they have to make that decision to do it, it's a scary moment, because you're about to step across a line, and you have no idea what's going to happen. So I went home, had that conversation and began the journey. And we found a, a program that was actually one of the first ones in the country for sex addicts. And it was it was actually here in Mississippi in Tupelo. So I was able to go to it. And that really began the process of my journey of learning about recovery techniques and processing and doing all this stuff. So I was 30 years old when I processed my parents' divorce. I had never really processed that. I didn't even know what that was. I really want to dig into the recovery stuff, but if if it's okay with you, I want to go backwards first and acknowledge some of the things that you said when you talked about people just saying, why don't you just quit? Yeah. And the shame that comes with that. 
I've heard that out of gamblers' mouths like over and over again. It's so similar, I think, those feelings mm-hmm. and, and the suicidal ideation, you know, around it. And I think I've always felt that gambling addiction, as far as education and, you know, Gamblers Anonymous and those kinds of things, was about 30 years behind Alcoholics Anonymous, mm-hmm. right? Like yeah. people, some people knew, some people didn't, but the education and the, the general population's awareness is it like that in, in the porn arena, the sex addict arena? I would imagine it is. Yeah, at that time, that was that was mid-90s. So, you know, the internet hadn't really blown up as much. Today, I think there's a lot more acknowledgement of it. But you kind of, it's kind of two spectrums. You've got people, you know, in the faith world who see it as wrong. Well, then if you're in that world, then you have extra shame if you admit it. Outside the faith world, people are like, well, what's the big deal? You know, and it's like, well, I can't stop. Well, you just need to quit. You know, so so no matter what world you're in, it's hard to get people to understand if they've never been there. And not that they have to have done that, but they they just don't understand the process behind it. That what you're doing is just medicating. And and porn happens to be your choice of medication, where gambling can be someone else's choice or alcohol. But if you say alcohol, people are like, oh yeah, drinking problem. It's almost less of a shame than these other things. Yeah, I think it has to do with the level of normalizing as well. I hear it all the time, like even with language, people talk about double downing or you want to bet, like it's just normal ingrained. Mm -hmm. And I think with your point with the internet, porn is a normal it's just normal, normal, you know, I'll use my air quotes that it's, it's accepted. And then this is crazy too. I hadn't connected the dots before, which just popped in my head. So bear with me. I think there's a lot of people out there, like what's jumping in my head is there's a show called sex with Emily. It's a podcast. And there's a lot of women out there that are advocating to teach women. It's okay to be okay about their sexuality. So now it's almost like here, women go watch porn. Like, for example. So it's more of that acceptance again, that it's just part of our culture. It is. And, and, and I think a lot of people don't realize what it does. People say it empowers women. I actually disagree. I think it just sexualizes women, which makes them more of an object to men. Now people can disagree with me with that and that's fine. But I think also in our world, we're seeing men who are affected by this. You know, as you notice, as internet porn has increased, Viagra, Cialis, all these other drugs have increased, you know, and nobody's sitting there going, hey, maybe this is a problem. Well, it is a problem. It's a huge problem. Because I think in the porn world, I think women who look at porn, they think, oh, gosh, I'm not like that, you know, because they're watching an actress. They're watching a fantasy role. They're watching someone who's probably had a lot of work done on their body in a situation. So they feel like, well, I guess I'm not enough. Well, men are the same thing. Because men watch a guy in porn and they think, there's no way I could do that. You know, that's not real. And and that's the point. It's not real. It's a fantasy world, um, but it's a very addictive fantasy world. And I think I think both men and more women now are getting more where because of the availability of it, it's out there. And I think it, it can easily become a drug of choice for people because it's done in secret. That's such an important point, what you said about whether you're using it as a coping mechanism or you're using it for i'll say this woman's scenario i want to make sure i choose my words carefully and and so no matter what that is i didn't 
equate the impacts either. So you talked about the the Viagra's of the world going up, but it's probably impacting the Valiums or the, I don't know, the antidepressant Prozacs and stuff too, because if people are starting to get depressed because of this body image thing, I hadn't thought of that as well. Yeah, it's a huge aspect because, you know, people in porn have to be in shape, like really, really in shape. And, you know, most of our country is not in the greatest of shape. And even if you're in just decent shape, you know, most people don't have a six pack. You know, and that's just huge across our country. You know, I worked with teenagers for 30 years and and I noticed the transition of guys into body image problems. Because if you notice every movie, every TV show, a guy has a six pack. So now for young men, it's very important to have a six pack, you know, and that's really hard to get. Wow. Okay. I know we had to go backwards. So so you talked about going home to your wife. I'm curious to what the aha, or I don't know if it's called rock bottom, whatever that, what was the trigger or the impetus to get you to have that conversation with your wife and start on that journey? Yeah, for me, it was the birth of my son. It was realizing that I'm going to be a dad and I had absolutely no clue what I was doing. And so I knew that this was a problem and that I had to begin to deal with it. So Um, I think you shared with me that it's been 25 years and you said your son is 25. Yeah. Yeah. He's 25. Wow. So congratulations on that. And um, yeah, thank you. I also want to say thank you for being so honest and and sharing this the way you are. So yeah. So how did your wife handle it? What steps did you take? I'm curious about all the things that come next. Well, I went to that workshop and it was the first time I'd ever been to anything like that. And that opened my eyes to the need for counseling. So uh, at that time, Uh, We had actually moved to here, Jackson, Mississippi, and there was a counseling center here that I went to. And I started going to SA meetings and and doing that thing. But the counseling is what really helped me because, like I said, it helped me to understand why I was the way I was. Because when you're living life and you don't know any better, you don't have a frame of reference. And I think most addicts think that, well, I just live a normal life like everyone else. Well, probably not. There's things in you that are driving you to this. What are they? And it teaches, and for me, it was learning how to live healthy. The hardest part of recovery is not not doing whatever. It's just living life with stress because your your addiction has always helped you manage your stress. Well, now you don't have that. So you're like, oh crap, what do I do now? You know, for me, it was I can't go get porn. So I had to learn how to live a stress-free life or not stress-free, but how to deal with real life stress. And most of us haven't done that because our addiction has kind of been that wall of safety. And so that's the hardest part of people in recovery. It's not so much, you know, getting clean or whatever. It's living real life. That's the hard part. Yes. And so for me, it was counseling. Yeah. Counseling helped me begin that process. I call counseling today. I try to change the verbiage for men. It's just mental and emotional coaching is what a counselor is. Because for a lot of guys, you think a counselor, they think I have to lay on a couch and cry. It's like, no, this is like a mental and emotional coach who helps you learn how to deal with stuff. That's exactly a great way to do it. Yeah, it really helped me. Is there, this is, I guess, a little technical question. Is SA, Sex Addicts Anonymous, the only resource? Or is, is there like a porn anonymous? Like, is there lines? What's the socially yeah, accepted time, Yeah, at that time, all you had was was SA groups or SAA, I think is one or the other. And um, it's kind of pretty much everybody. 
is in one group. Not today, I don't know. I haven't been to a, a meeting in many, many years. At that time, it was everybody together, which has its pros and cons. You know, it was, you see a bunch of people who are struggling just like you. Mine was more in the porn world. Theirs was more in the real life world, but that's where I was going. I would have been in that world eventually. And also, unfortunately, you learn about stuff you didn't know about. (laughs) That's what that was. I didn't know that, you know, but it was, it was one of those things that it kind of helped you to see that other people are struggling. And then I think today there's a lot more resources out there for people in the, specifically with the porn, as far as thing to help you with your phone and, and to help you learn to overcome and things like that. So you said, you mentioned the faith-based world. I'm assuming you're yeah. still in the faith-based world. Is that? Yeah, I was, I was a minister for 30 years. I was a youth pastor. And so that's why I said I've worked with young people for 30 years. So I just stepped out of that last year, or this earlier this year, when I started just doing the coaching and everything. Wow. Congratulations. So I have so many thoughts just bouncing in my head. So bear with me. Um, yeah, it's an eclectic story. For sure. Another path that you started going down, I'm, I'm so inquisitive about all of this, yeah. is the trauma. I think mm-hmm. that, you know, you referenced the childhood trauma. Yeah. And I believe that trauma is a big connection because I believe it's a yeah. coping, you know, our addictions are our coping mechanisms. And mm-hmm. I think you said that you started to address it and understand that it was the trauma that was the cause like in your thirties, right? Did you say that? Yeah, that's when I started uh, when I was about 30, when I went into recovery is when I started uh, dealing with all the emotions. And really that was the first time I had looked back on that trauma and realized okay, that was messed up, you know, because at the time as a kid, you just don't know. Right. You just kind of put it, what I call, men have what I call brain boxes. And, and we have the ability to box something up and put it to the back of our brain and not think about it, which during a war, that's great. But, you know, living real life every day, that cannot be good. So what happens is our brains gets full of these boxes. And so it clutters up our thinking. So we can't think clearly. So men have a hard time saying what they really think or feel often. And it's not that they don't feel or think. It's just hard for her to get through all the boxes. So what I started doing at that time is really starting unpacking all the boxes in my brain. And I realized, okay, this is messed up. And then I started looking at different things that had happened through me, especially in the sexual world, that was just messed up, you know, where, where I could have easily walked down that road too of abuse and things, you know, because it just messes your mind up. And until you recognize it and deal with it, well, that's like a weight you're carrying. It's like you're trying to swim carrying a 50 pound weight. It's not going to last very long. And I think there's a lot of people who have trauma and they think, well, it wasn't that big a deal. I was a kid. Well, no, it was a big deal. You probably need to get someone to help you walk through that journey, you know, and figure out how to process it. I'm grateful to be in this space so that I can learn more about those things. I've been exposed. Mm-hmm. And when I have like stress or wellness experts on here, I'm noticing a consistent theme about going backwards before you can go forward and, yeah. and acknowledging that stuff and dealing with it and how our personalities show up because of it, but we don't connect the dots. I mean, it's not black and white and, and it's, it's crazy. It's, it's not all well, discussed. People, yeah. People think you should just be able to push a button. I'm recovered now. Well, okay, you might stop that addiction, 
But if you don't learn how to deal with your stuff or how to live life, you're just going to find another one. You'll go from addiction to addiction and you'll do more acceptable ones like food for a lot of people is a big addiction or entertainment, you know, where you binge watch Netflix all day and all night. But all you're doing is just coping with something else. Yes. Now, okay. So that was a perfect segue into some of the recovery stuff because you did mention you were overweight as well. And I'm looking at you. You're definitely not overweight now. And I've found this, like when I quit gambling, worked on myself, the drinking Mm -hmm. has kind of fallen away. I still am not sure if I'll ever drink again. I I like literally am bouncing that around in my head lately. It's been kind of stressing me out. I'm smoking this week, but I've been having a lot more smoke-free days than smoking ones because because of what you're talking about is handling the stress in different ways. So if you don't mind sharing a little bit about the recovery piece of this, the things you've learned, I mean, do you feel that way about the connection between your weight then and your weight now? I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm curious yeah. your perspective. No, it's, it's in fact, they, they really go hand in hand because as I began to deal with stuff in my life, that actually gave me the emotional ability to start eating less. I went from 280 to about 240 stayed there for a few years, and then uh, moved down into the 220 area and stayed there for a few years. So it's been a long journey with the whole food thing, because I didn't realize how much... I mean, I enjoy eating, I enjoy cooking, things like that. So that's still there. I'm a Southern boy. But what I had to get away from was where I'm stressed, I'm going to go you know, get a candy bar, get a big drink or whatever. And, and so it's just been slowly... And plus exercise has become more of my coping mechanism just because it's healthy. You feel better. And I tell people that you can't, for me, food is how you lose weight. Exercise is how you feel better. If people only exercise to lose weight, they'll hate exercise and they'll, they'll quit doing it. If the only reason you exercise is so you can go eat a donut, you'll hate the exercise. You have to deal with the food, but the exercise, I tell people, helps me handle stress and sleep better at night. You know, it's just... It just does. My wife, before she passed away, we went through a two and a half year battle with cancer. She had brain cancer. And exercise was a huge part. What I do is I do like one or two triathlons a year and not huge long ones, but like a a half Ironman or a smaller one. And training for those forced me to exercise. But doing that helped me deal with the fact of what was going on in my life and how it was going up and down and up and down. And and it was just a struggle. That's what exercise is. I wouldn't have known that had I not started recovery years ago. There's just no way I would have had those coping mechanisms. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear about your wife. Thank you. Stuff sucks. Yeah, it does. I love how you diminished the half of Iron Man. Like that's still kind of a big deal, you know. Well, I've got one in two weeks. So I'm I'm getting ready for it, and I'm like, I don't know if I want to do another one of these again. It's a lot of training, but to me, it's an accomplishment. It's like climbing a mountain or doing something like that. When you do it, you're like, okay, I did that. I wasn't the fastest. I wasn't trying to win. There's no way I could. But the fact that I finished it, nobody has ever asked me, hey, how long did it take? You know, they're just like, oh, you finished. Yep, and that's the goal, and that's what most people. And triathlons are actually kind of fun. And short ones are really fun. Uh, it's a good way to get into it. I think I would like it, but I don't like the idea of swimming. Like if I was in the Caribbean and it was nice, clean water and I could see <laughs> the fishes, but the idea of yeah. going in a lake just freaks me out. I don't 
that's literally my barrier because I enjoy walking. I'm not crazy about running, but yeah. to be motivated that way as a challenge. That mm-hmm. and biking, I would love to do. But that lake water just doesn't do it for me. Well, a lot of your short ones in some towns, they do it in pools. That you I swim left and then go to the bike and then go to the run. Good to know. Yeah. Tell me some of the other things along like what you like to do for recovery. It sounds like you're dialed in on your self-care, eating right, exercising. Is there anything else that maybe you can share with my audience that works for you? And because I'm a woman, I don't maybe have all the answers for the men sometimes. So love for ideas like that. Well, I think what we talked about earlier, I think in the beginning, the reason I have tools is because I have counseling and the counseling gave me tools. And that's why, again, it's it's mental and emotional coaching. If that helps you accept it better, call it that. Yes, it will cost money. It should cost money. Recovery is going to cost us because our addiction costs us. But if we're not willing to pay, then I think there's we don't buy into it as much. I think that's just the reality. People, well, I want to recover, but I don't want it to cost me anything. Well, you know, Harris Casino, they cost you something, didn't they? Well, yeah, but, you know, and so I think it's part of it. But through that, some of the biggies for me was was having strong friends, having having a group of friends wherever I live, because I've, I've moved a few times and, and uh, tried to have friends I can connect with in those areas each time. And then journaling became a huge thing for me. I've journaled really pretty regularly ever since for the past 25 years in one form or fashion, sometimes slower, sometimes more. But journaling really helps me to write through. And people say, well, I like to go back and read my... I've never gone back and read my journals. To me, it's about getting it out. To me, it's about writing it out, getting it out. And it's not a diary. You know, I don't have to put what I ate that day, but I can if I want to. You know, so I write the good days, the bad days. When we were going through my wife's sickness, journaling was a lifeline for me to really get all my emotions out. And then, you know, like I said, friendship, having a community, people you can connect with who build you up and don't tear you down. That's the hard part of recovery for a lot of people is all their friends may still be in what they were in. So then you have loneliness. And then, so they have to find that new area of connectedness. You know, if all your friends went to the sports bar with you, you know, to bet on the games every weekend and you're not going anymore, you're going to feel that as a man and be like, I have no friends. Finding other friends who aren't into that is the other thing. Did you find that your friends changed or that I'm very passionate about being transparent in recovery. Otherwise, I don't think we're recovering. So we have to be honest, even with the grade school friends or whatever. Most of them don't care. Like, And by don't care, I mean, don't hold it against us. Don't end the friendships. Like, I've never personally experienced that. And I'm talking, even my gambling friends are cool with me not gambling and very supportive. Did you find that your friends changed? Do you, how do you, you had that conversation with folks, it sounds like. Um, what did that look like, that dynamic? Yeah, for me, being in the, in the faith world, I didn't really have any friends who were obviously in that. But what's interesting is as I shared my story with people, then I started getting people coming and talking to me. So it really became a way of, hey, can I talk to you? And this was you know, back in a time where in the faith world, nobody talked about it. So it really was a chance to just help people one-on-one, which is, which is what I did tried to help them go through it. And through that, you know, we would kind of form, you know, groups to help each other and things like that. We didn't always do it 
great. You know, it wasn't the classic ways, not the best advice probably at times, but, you know, just guys trying to walk through it themselves. And uh, so I would just, basically what I learned through all my counseling, I would try to tell people. So they thought I was great, but it was, I was parroting what the, what the counselor told me. So I do that myself. If they don't, you know, if they don't or have the resources or can't connect with all the sources that I get to be exposed to, whether it's reading a book or talking to experts. Yeah. Let's pass it on. What do they call it? The reporter. That's what they call it in KBB is the reporter. Yeah. I'm curious. I don't want to put words in your mouth, mm-hmm. but as we talk about like shame and guilt and those emotions, if you felt those, how did you combat them with the faith perspective? I'm really curious about that. Like, how did you get past that if you felt that and yeah. reconcile with God? Now, I'm a spiritual person. I'm not necessarily okay. a God person. I respect yeah. religion and points of view and all that. But I'd be really curious knowing that there's rules, for lack of a better word, and, and maybe some judgment around it when it comes to religion. And can you kind of help people understand how to get through that? Because yeah. the one that hits me the closest to home is having gay friends and then mm-hmm. how religion mm-hmm. treats same-sex marriage and stuff. And I love it because I go to a non-denominational church and the pastor will say, you know, like, you don't get to just be a good person, a good Christian on Sunday. You go, you know, when you go in the parking lot, you can't go give the guy a finger if he pulls out in front of you, you know, like you got to be, don't be a hypocrite about it is basically the message. Yeah. So I'm just curious if you can give us some guidance on that. Yeah, for me, it's, and and I think it's understanding, and and I come from a a Judeo-Christian, I mean, uh, evangelical church background. It's understanding what, what the scripture actually says. What people do sometimes is not actually what's what the Bible says. And that's what we have to understand. Shame, most of the time, is self-induced. But other people can try to shame you. But most people who are doing that don't really understand what they're talking about. And so it's like this. If I'm ignorant about something, it's easier for me to put up a wall to you than to actually understand it. So if I don't really, like if if my faith can't handle the fact that you struggle with porn, then if I shame you, I don't have to think of the fact of how do I deal with this from a biblical background. And, and so that's where that comes from. And so what happens, what it makes me sad is people who come to a church and feel that shame without someone actually talking to them and saying, hey, let's, let's see what the Bible really says, and them understanding what the Bible says. So that's kind of, for me, it was understanding what it really says. And as I began to see that, I began to see my relationship with God and what it would be like, what He did for me, and how much He really wants me. And He took care of the whole shame, sin thing. It's done. So, so once I understood that, that really helped me to kind of stand up. Now, were there moments it was scary? Yeah. Could it have, you know, have people maybe judged me through it? Probably. But no one's come up to me and been like, Oh, you're a terrible person. Usually it's the opposite. It's, hey, thanks for sharing that. Because what I do is I, I share it from a real perspective. I'm a real person. But I, I can also explain how, you know, in the church, you can have people who are struggling with things. You know, there's place for that. You don't have to condemn people. And actually, you know, people say, well, people tell us we're wrong. Well, I don't tell anyone they're wrong. I just, let's see what the, what the Bible says. Most people can hang with that. I don't want to get into preaching or anything, but you know the Bible is very clear about what it's clear about, and but we can do that in a non-offensive way. 
and help people to see, you know, for me, it was just understanding how wanted I was. And I understood how much God is my father. And that, I think, helped me grab a hold of, okay, I have a dad who's here. He's been with me the whole time. I can understand that. And I love my earthly dad. He's incredible. But like I said, he was two states away, so it was kind of hard. So I grew up with that void. My mom was a single mom, hustling, trying, you know, to put food on the table for two kids. So it was it was rough. And, and really, I didn't understand all that until I had kids, you know, yeah. until I looked back and I thought, oh, OK, that's why, you know, because as a kid, you don't know. So did I answer the question? I felt like I might have rambled a little bit. No, that was good, because this is an area I don't understand a lot about how you said you don't tell anybody to do anything or, you know, feel any kind of way. That's my belief as far as my whole show, my whole platform, whatever. I don't mm-hmm. care how people get there. I just care that they find the way that's right for them. And well, it's, it's understanding that a lot of people just don't truly understand what the Bible says. They've right. heard stories because I tell people that you couldn't make a movie about the Bible for real. You know, when you have daughters sleeping with their dad and things like that, and people are like, what? Yeah, that's you didn't know that was in there? No. The, the Bible speaks about the reality of people and, and who we are and what we are. And and that's the beautiful thing of it is he doesn't sugarcoat it. Gotcha. I honestly, I'm not a good comprehensive reader. You know what I mean? Like, uh-huh. so I'll get tripped up, like whether it's Shakespeare or the Bible, I get tripped up yeah. and my brain wanders trying to solve whatever I'm getting tripped up on. And I'll be five yeah. pages later and not know what I read. I find that I enjoy the stories when Pastor Buddy's talking about them. If I read the same language, I wouldn't get that story out of it. So I struggle with that, yeah. even as I'm trying to get educated. Yeah. So yeah, I appreciate you sharing on that. Because like I said, it's just not my wheelhouse. And I know it's important to so many people that yeah. I can't deliver the right messaging. So I appreciate it. Well, you. and it's hard for people if they're in the church and they're struggling with stuff. Sometimes they feel like, who can I go to? Will people judge me? And it's not a matter, none of us judge. We just look and see what, what is truth and what does God have for us. And once you see the truth and see what he has for you, you let the Bible speak to that stuff. You don't have to as much. Okay, good. Is there anything that I haven't dug a little deeper on or got curious about that you want to share that, like I said, that I might not have picked up on? One of the things for people who recover, especially someone who's married, like for us, for my wife and I, we had been married a few years before my son had been born. And so life had kind of built one way. I was very, I didn't have much of an opinion. I didn't have much. I was like, hey, whatever, because I was hiding, you know, I was hiding my world. Well, then I went into recovery and started gaining an opinion. Well, she had gotten used to me not having opinion. She was a very strong person. So she loved it. She got what she wanted all the time. Well, then I started having an opinion. So there are situations where as a couple, you'll probably need to go through and deal with. She told me later it was a hassle because it was almost like getting a new husband. But she said she really liked the new husband better. So, you know, it was an adjustment. And I think be ready for that. There are adjustments in relationships, in close relationships. And you both may have to go get some counseling through that to learn how to walk through that. One of my mental and emotional coaches says that people see us still in our stories when when we're trying to recover people still see us that way. So that's a great call out to talk about the relationship. It's a lot of work. Yeah. And and some relationships, it's just, it may be so far gone. Serious work has to be done. And I think be ready for that. You know, I don't think you should ever go in and burn 
the scorched earth policy. Well, I'm going to divorce everybody and do this and do no, 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 no. Work through it together because uh, that'll actually make the relationship stronger. I am so grateful to have a little bit more clarity about this. I think it's important in the recovery community to understand, even though we may not be in the same ending in an A room or even using the A rooms, whatever that is, those thoughts, those feelings Mm -hmm. that come with what's going on, usually the reasons, the trauma, not that the traumas are the same or whatever it is that we're trying to cope with, that's pretty consistent across everybody. So I appreciate you validating that. Now, For the men out there listening, and I guess the women too, I want you to know that David's podcast will be out the middle of October, right? Middle of October. Looking forward to come out. So do you want to share real quick what that's about so that the gang... It's going to be the Confident Man podcast. It'll be on all the platforms. It's focused toward men, just helping them live their life with more confidence. Uh, A lot of men are overwhelmed with life, with busyness, with insecurity, and it's helping them to realize that they can walk in their purpose as men and really be more confident in what they do. I think we have a lot of men out there who are like, am I doing this right? Am I being a good dad? Am I being a good husband? How do I do that? How do I find a wife? You know, or whatever. And I think for those guys, uh, it's helping them to be more confident. Great. In fact, my first episode We'll probably talk about brain boxes. So, yeah, that was a very, you know, what was going through my brain. And I, I should have, I'm a horrible listener sometimes because my brain does the same thing as when I read books. Full disclosure. But when you were talking about that, it reminded me of the last man I was involved in and mm-hmm. how we saw things so differently. And that box yeah. theory really explains away some of the problem <laughs> with well with I, yeah i came up with it one time for a blog because i have a blog that i write and i was like how do you explain that and that really because when we first got married like my wife was like a, a lawyer she could remember everything and i couldn't remember what i ate for breakfast you know and so if we got in an argument it was so frustrating because i couldn't think clearly and I couldn't, I didn't know what I was feeling. And uh, it's the brain box thing. So interesting. Well, thank you for everything, David. My guys listening, I think that David's show will be out when this airs. So please go check it out. It's just like this show, you know, maybe you're not ready to speak up yet, but maybe you need to learn and you want to digest and do things on your time. I really see the value of what you're doing in that space. So I appreciate yeah. you. Being I appreciate the time. It's been a joy. It's been a blast being here. Thanks so much. I hope you guys found that as insightful as I did. I think that it's so easy if we don't understand things to have opinions about them. So I hope that this gave you some new information and also a resource. You know, if there's anyone out there that's struggling with this, you know, reach out to David. He, I'm sure, will get you pointed in the right direction or can chat with you. Okay, my quote for today, since I think even me went into this not understanding, and I don't want to say judging, but I feel like the word judging comes up when it comes to addiction a lot anyway. So that's why I picked this as a quote. And it comes to us today from Diver Quotes. Judgments prevent us from seeing the good that lies beyond the appearances. And I think that all of us that have been judged and are judged, which I think there's all of us in the audience and me included it's just part of the way of life so 
Let's not do that, guys. I hope that you have a wonderful rest of your day, and I will talk to you soon. Thanks.